You are listening to the Horse Radio Network, part of the Equine Network family. This is episode 235 of Horsemanship Radio, brought to you by HandsOnGloves.com, the all-in-one revolutionary bathing grooming gloves. Horsemanship Radio is a part of the family of the Horse Radio Network, and today we have Dr. Sarah Roos on to share with us a little bit about what to expect in a lameness exam. That's a good thing. And we also have uh, Carl Bledsoe, and we are going to go through some gated horse basics. This is Debbie Laux, and you're listening to the Horsemanship Radio. Thanks for joining us. Horsemanship Radio airs on the 1st and the 15th of the month. I have my producer, Jen, with me today, who is my cohort and co-host. So how are you, Jen? Doing great. So excited for today's show. I know. You love geeky, lameness, science like me. It's so fun. Well, and, and Dr. Roos is great. She is the... Um, AAEP, American Association of Equine Practitioners, Horse Owner Education Committee member, and it's a perfect job for her because she's so engaging and she makes everything understandable from a regular horse person's point of view. So I'm really excited to talk to her because some people have a lot of experience with lameness exams, some people less so, lucky you. Yeah, sorry about that. (laughs) (laughs) But... A lot of times we're, we stress because we don't know what to expect. So it's yeah. a, it's going to be a really interesting conversation about what a horse owner might likely anticipate happening at a lameness exam. That's good. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's so a, it's really it's cool. A, it's a when, where, you know, how, all those things answered. So, and Jen get, jumps in there. Jen, you're going to jump in there and help with. Oh some of your yeah. Well, anybody that has veterinary in front of their name, I just have to pick their brains. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, she's really good too. And we're going to have her on a future, maybe the next one episode about a new product that her sciencey geeky company, Ingelheim um, Bowener, is uh, producing and and created for the universe. Love them. They create something to calm your horse that you don't feed them. Yeah, a relax. No spoilers. Yeah, you don't actually put it in there. I won't spoil. Um, But yeah, we're going to chill everybody out. Yeah, Yeah, chill everybody out. That was really cool. And then, of course, Carl Bledsoe. Lots of gated horse fans will know about him. He's he's kind of the guy to go to if you want a better gated horse. The one you've got is lovely, but you want to make him better. And And he's got some really fun. Right, yeah. really understand the training of gated horses. Yeah. Everybody loves the natural, but how do you train for that? You know, and how do you know what's under you? I mean, it's all I kind know. of stuff going on under there. So it's a lot going on there. So of course, we've got our trainer tip. Every single show, we toss a trainer tip in there from the Ask Monty section of the MontyRoberts.com website. Whenever somebody goes to MontyRoberts.com mm-hmm. and they're curious about the Q and A department, how do they find it? So MontyRoberts.com, if you go to the top tabs, you'll see one that says, it's the third one in line. It says online lessons. Now, all the Q&As since 2004, I'll repeat that because it sounds impossible. All the Q&As 
since 2004 have been posted on MontyRobertsUniversity.com and it is not behind a subscriber wall. You can actually go and search them and find that database. And if Monty hasn't answered that question yet, please send in your question. <laughs> so we have- well, That's interesting. People can still send questions in. That's neat. 100%. I do that every week with dad. We go through questions. Sometimes we bank up two or three at a time. But I every, every week we put out a new Q&A and he gets the question because I go through the questions that you guys send in. And then he picks the one he wants to answer and he answers them. I just type the, the, the computer keys. That's all. I have a question. Can I submit one right now? Yes, you can. <laughs> you sure can. What's your question? An important part of Equus, the language, yes, is how you touch a horse, why you touch a horse, and when you touch a horse. Okay. We all love to rub our ponies' faces. Oh, we love to rub them between the ears. We love that. Mm-hmm. I want. I would love to hear... Monty explain when you see Monty or persons who have been trained to use the language of Equus properly, when they touch the horse's face, they do it in a very specific way. I want to know why it's done that way and when we should or shouldn't be touching our horse's face. Ah, that's a great question. I'm not going to answer. I know. No, don't. This is for next time. I am not going to answer that right now. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but I might get Monty himself to answer that question. Yeah, I want to know. We do, we do get people to say, why is that important? Or, you know, a, a lot of different variations on that uh, question. And it's a great one, Jen. So thank it's you. It's specifically about touching their face because yeah. it's, a, it's kind of a seminal moment. You see a lot of photographs of it because mm-hmm. it is inspiring to see in person even in a photograph it's inspiring to see um so that's why i'm curious about that because i understand a little bit of it because i get to talk to you and monty and and Mm. lots of other people a lot but i think it's important for folks to understand that there's a time to touch there's a time to not touch there's an appropriate way to touch and there's an inappropriate way to touch and what prompted this question today there's always a reason Oh, good. Tell me. Uh, when I went out to visit the ponies this morning, our horses live at a boarding stable, and I go out every day to visit them as much as I can. But when I went out this morning, um, Scooter, who is extremely thigmotaxis, did I pronounce ah, that correct? Very good. That's a good word. Yes. Meaning, meaning they're into pressure. When he feels pressure, he pushes back against it. Extreme. Extreme. Mm. And he's taught me a lot because I had to become a better horse person to interact with him well. And when I touch his face, I have to do it correctly. If I don't do it correctly, Uh it is not a good experience for either of us. (laughs) And I'm going to leave it at that because (laughs) next time when we answer the question, when Monty answers the question, I'll talk to you about my experience of doing it incorrectly versus correctly and what happens with Scooter. Ah, so he has taught you. Scooter has now taught you how to do it correctly for him. Scooter has taught me because he's that horse that he reacts the way a horse was designed to react versus someone who's trained mm-hmm. the horse to put his head down when you touch it in a certain way sure. or yeah. a horse that um, flies away from you because it's been hit. Right. He, he's he got that. 
he's got the hard wiring still in there about that. Mm. And it helps, like I said, it helps me be a better horse person, the way my horses behave. Because when things aren't going well, I can look at myself and go, well, that means I'm not doing things well. Uh, I well, need to do better. <laughs> it, it, you know, it's the, it's the best thing you can do for your horses to say those things out loud. Or dad says another thing is look in the mirror. <laughs> you know, you're the problem. Yes. Um, yes. And if we can say that to ourselves and smile, then um, yes, exactly. We don't we don't have to beat ourselves up over it. No. We're all work in progress, right? Right. In every Absolutely. way imaginable. Yep. Absolutely. Yep. We're, we never stop learning. And never if you learning. if you think you've stopped learning or you think you don't need to learn anymore, you actually need to learn a lot more. <laughs> there you go. There you <laughs> go. Not a, not a good without point. further ado, we're yep. going to learn a little bit more about Hands On Gloves. Our title sponsor could not do this show without them. And then we're going to talk much. to Sarah. Jay Michelson grew up bathing and grooming horses and dogs. Raised in Texas, he always wondered why his family couldn't find a better way than the old hard-to-hold curry combs or bathing mitts that never fit and the shedding blades that literally ripped the animal's hair right out. Well, fast forward 20 years, and Jay had an idea. Frustrated by the old products still not improving after 20 years, he spent more than four years and several hundred thousand dollars developing hands-on gloves quickly realizing that the reason a quality, comparable grooming product had never been developed, they were really difficult to make right. But he did it. Hands-on reaches far beyond the traditional curry combs, mitts, and shedders out there on the market. Wet or dry, the delicate gloves won't slip or fall off, providing both the groomer and the animal with more thorough and enjoyable grooming and bathing experiences. Constructed from durable, hypoallergenic, surgical-grade material, these lightweight gloves come in five sizes with extremely soft nodules on the fingers and palms. Trust me, hands-on gloves are the best of all the ways out there to groom your horses, dogs, and cats. Put them on your gift list, too. Find all the sizes and all the colors at handsongloves.com. Dr. Sarah Roos serves as an equine technical manager with Boeinger Ingelheim Animal Health. She's active in organized veterinary medicine, currently serving as the chair for the AAEP Horse Owner Education Committee and co-chair of the AAEP Internship Subcommittee, too. She previously served on the AAEP Board of Directors and the Veterinary Leadership Institute. In her free time, Dr. Roos enjoys riding her Holsteiner gelding chili. Well, welcome, Dr. Sarah Roos. Dr. Roos, how are you? I'm well, thank you. How are you? Well, that's good because this is an interview about wellness. <laughs> and we should I'm all so, be well. We should all be well. Um, but I, I'm really excited about this too. This is a great topic, not always, um, you know, a and not stressful topic, but it's a great topic to tackle with horse owners. And you come from a great company and a great background. And we've just read your uh, lead in bio and everybody knows that you can nail this topic. So I thought, well, I'm, I'm just going to throw some stuff at you and feel like an owner who says, oh my gosh, I'm super stressed because I don't know why my horse is lame and it's been treated for this and that. And it. um, you know, whether it's career threatening or not, you know, it, if you could help us recognize potential common causes of lameness, then I would feel so much better. Of course, with the admonition 
to call your vet too if there's anything that you know we're really worried about. Is that right? Yes, definitely. Always better to err on the side of caution if there's something you're worried about. Um, obviously, if the horse is non-weight-bearing lame, that is much more of an emergency mm. than maybe a, a more subtle lameness that you know a, a regular appointment could be scheduled. Um, but certainly, anytime your horse is either non-weight-bearing lame or if they have that kind of rocked back appearance, you know, where they're trying to take Mm -hmm. weight off of both of their front feet, like it's a laminitis Mm -hmm. or a bounder issue. You know, Mm -hmm. those are the two things I would say that are emergency vet calls. Uh, Probably the more subtle intermittent lamenesses that as horse owners arguably stress us out even more because they're harder Mm -hmm. to actually nail down to what's actually going on. One of those, they don't feel quite right, but I'm not really sure what's exactly happening. That's it. That's it. Or you don't even notice it on the ground, but you notice it in the saddle and you're like, ah, yep. something's off. Yeah. Yeah. And there yeah. certainly are some lamenesses that are actually only visible with a rider in the tack. You know, mm-hmm. something about it, whether it's the additional weight or the, you know, the frame that the horse is mm-hmm. in or however it is that they're carrying themselves, um, you know, can, can exacerbate something that, you know, on the ground, in the field, on a lunge line, the horse might look totally normal. Uh, and it's, it's really just with a rider up. And so, that's where, you know, lameness exams can be rather long drawn out affairs. In yeah, terms of I don't blame, yeah, I, yeah, I don't envy you um, the, yeah. the, the difficulty of, of finding that. I mean, there's the obvious ones. And tell us about the ones, the common causes of lameness. They would be like abscesses and bruises. Sure. And, yeah. So maybe a, a little run through on that because and, and how we notice them, like, like I, you will, you'll probably just say head bobbing. Um, stiffness, little things like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, certainly, you know, kind of what what we always teach even veterinary students is, you know, that the bulk of of horse lameness starts in the foot. Um, And I think the foot is is certainly a good place to look and even for horse owners to look into to kind of rule out. So things like abscesses, as you mentioned, are certainly quite common, especially depending upon weather conditions, you know, when we go through kind of some wet spells and those sorts of things. Generally speaking, again, with like with a hoof abscess, your horse can go from pretty normal to pretty darn lame quite quickly. Um, usually with them, you may actually be able to feel heat in the foot. Um, you may actually be able to feel a little bit of a pulse above the foot. So kind of things that are telling you, again, this is in the foot, you know, there's, there's inflammation in here. Occasionally, you may actually even, you know, see it burst out the top by the coronary band where all of a sudden you actually see a wound up there. Um so abscess is certainly quite common. You know, other things that can happen in the foot can be harder sometimes to to figure out. And you know, things like sole bruising, again, especially if maybe you just pulled your horse's shoes or rode him on mm-hmm. rockier ground. You know, sometimes like the history helps you as much uh, with things like sole bruising or, again, depending on the color of your horse's foot, you may actually even see some bruising, you know, on mm. the, the sole of the foot itself. Okay. Um, you know, other things kind of within the foot, you know, we always think of the foot as, well, uh, a hard structure, um, but there's actually a lot of soft tissue structures within the foot as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so there's a variety of different tendons and ligaments and whatnot that all, you know, attach to that coffin bone or run over the navicular bone on the backside of the horse's foot. And damage to any of those can cause lameness. Uh, we often kind of lump those under that terminology of navicular syndrome. You know, we used mm-hmm. to think it was kind of more that actual navicular bone. Now we know it's kind of all of those different structures. Mm-hmm. Um, and that can be a really common injury in horses. And, and one of the ones that's probably a little bit harder to figure out exactly what is going on in the foot uh, to, to figure out where it is. You know, kind of moving up from the foot, things like bowed tendons, you know, mm-hmm. pretty easy to 
to identify. You know, you actually see the swelling, you feel the swelling, you feel some heat uh, in the back of the horse's cannon bone. Uh, so things there can be easier. Um, you know, if all of a sudden they have any swollen joints, so whether that's the fetlock, the stifle, the hock, whatever it might be, mm-hmm. um, you know, those can be related again to whether that's a soft tissue injury, whether it's a joint injury, you know, kind of anytime you actually see swelling or heat or feel the horse reluctant to flex a joint. So you just go to pick up your horse's feet just to pick them out. And you notice, you know, as soon as you kind of pull on his knee that he doesn't like it, yeah. um, all of those things can kind of point you towards where, where an issue might be coming from. Yeah. Okay. So, okay. And the ones you just described, those are not really vet care. If you if you're a good horseman and you, you kind of know what you're doing with the little, or what should we do? Should, what should we do? If we're really green, call the vet. <laughs> I'm going to yeah. preempt that one. But what, what should we do if we think we know what we can do? Yeah, good question. So again, if it's something in the foot, um, you know, call potentially your vet or your farrier, you know, especially if, if your farrier is yeah. not pretty regularly, it does look something like a oh, abscess or a bruise or something yeah. like that. You know, farriers are, are more than qualified to, to deal with those yeah. sorts of things. Um, if it's other things, again, where you think maybe there is a, a bit of an abscess or something like that, you know, certainly soaking the foot is probably almost really never going to hurt. Um, yeah. You know, yeah. so soaking them in some Epsom salts to, again, see if you can actually kind of draw anything out. Um, same with, you know, swellings elsewhere, um, assuming that you are comfortable, you know, placing a good bandage or doing some cold hosing, uh, you know, I'd say in general, cold hosing is another thing that pretty much never can really hurt. Um, (laughs) Cold cold water is hard to do much damage with. So, you know, kind of when in doubt, uh, especially with anything swollen, uh, you know, that's never a a wrong situation either. Okay. And, um, so if we've got some bruising and, things like rest, um, you know, what, uh, and I'd love to pull Jennifer in here too, because this gal is uh, always I raising her you ahead hand of time. when it comes to health. I can waste I know. a lot of time with anybody with a doctor in front of their name. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's true. I, I know I want your expertise, Jen. I, I rarely get to pull you in. And this one, I really do want your help on that too, because you've just seen so many across so many disciplines and heard so many yeah, stories. Well, I think a lot of people, especially if you've, if you've not had a lot of experience with lame horses, oh, bless you if you haven't. Yeah. <laughs> You're lucky what, to knock on wood and buy a lottery ticket. <laughs> lock on wood and buy a lottery ticket. What might a very basic lameness exam look like? My horse is a little bit off, and I can tell when I trot him in hand, and I can definitely tell when I ride him in on his back. And he's just a little bit off, and it's been that way for four days now. And my vet can't come to my farm, so I have to drag my my horse to the veterinary clinic. What might the most basic, fundamental, what are the first three things a vet's going to do for a lameness exam? Great question. So start with just a good physical exam. So again, kind of just running your hands over the horse to see if, again, we feel any obvious swellings, heat, again, an increased you know pulse coming from the foot, anything like that. So usually we're going to start kind of just standing there looking at the horse um, from there, usually put a pair of hook testers on them. So again, kind of pick up each foot and squeeze on it pretty, uh, hard to see again, if we can localize anything there. And then it's really going to be just watching the horse go. So in general, going to want to watch the horse at the walk first, um, you know, see if there's something that, that they're lame enough that it's obvious at the walk and we can kind of say which leg it is, uh, assuming that we don't see a whole lot at the walk, uh, then we may trot them and both walking and trotting. Sometimes it depends the facility uh, that we're working at, but a lot of times it is nice to watch them 
again, both in a straightaway, on a circle, on different footings. You know, there are certainly misses that are more evident on hard footing. So doing them more on like a driveway or parking lot. Oh, and there are other that's an important that, one, I think. I think, that's a, yeah. I think that's one that owners at home, when they're trying to decide whether or not they're mm-hmm. calling the vet, that's probably a piece of information that would be really useful when you get your vet on the phone. You say, should I bring them in? Knowing how the horse goes straight, on a circle, hard ground, forgiving ground might give you some really essential information whether or not you say come in right now or you know cold hose for 24 hours yeah Mm -hmm. and i think the beauty anymore right is everybody has a cell phone with a camera yes you You can send it to you right exactly Mm -hmm. if it's something that either you see jogging your horse in hand at the farm or again you feel under saddle you know get somebody to take a video of Mm -hmm. it you know if you're riding the horse at the time um and you know that can be super helpful too especially Mm -hmm you know, to describe exactly what you're feeling or, you know, it seems worse when I turn to the left, I, I kind of seem yeah. to feel it here or, you know, all of those sorts of things. And, and videos can be, again, a pretty easy thing to, you know, shoot to your vet real quick and be like, Hey, this is what I'm feeling. This is what I see. You know, is this an emergency? What do you think? When can we get an appointment? Yeah. And sometimes to, to your point, even about, you know, hauling the horse to the clinic versus having the vet come to you, you know, there's pluses and minuses to both, right? But, you know, sometimes the benefit of taking your horse to the clinic is, you know, most of our clinics, we know we have those different footing types. You know, we we kind of have it set up in a way that sometimes it is actually more efficient. It doesn't always feel that way for, for you loading your horse and driving them. Mm-hmm. Um, but sometimes that controlled environment that we might have at a clinic, plus we have all our toys, right? You know, we have the x-ray, we have the ultrasound, we have whatever imaging things we want. Um, sometimes, you know, especially if it is something that we know is going to be maybe a little bit more subtle, a little bit harder to find, we mm-hmm. might say, you know what, it's going to be easier if you can just come and even like drop your horse off for the day, um, and kind of let us work through the paces on a variety of different surfaces and, and types of things. Uh, so versus- where do flexing the horse's joints, where, where does yep. that fall in the order of go? Does that come after you watch the horse go? Correct. Yep. So usually after we've watched them walk and trot again in each direction, plus minus on a circle, um, you know, if we have a pretty strong suspicion at that point, maybe of which limb it is, and sometimes it's more than one leg, uh, mm-hmm. that's when we'll start doing flexions. And so we kind of start low and work our way up, um, which is sometimes a bit of a um, workout, shall we say, for the person <laughs> doing the flexions. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's when you call in the depends. interns. Call in the <laughs> yes, exactly. You, you call in someone with a young, fresh back, <laughs> back <yeah. laughs> Who, who's able to get low and hold on to a horse. Uh, and so exactly. We'll kind of start in general with kind of flexing the lower limb. And so, you know, obviously all of their joints are connected. Um, so it's kind of hard to flex one without a little bit tweaking some others. So kind of lower limb, we're doing the fetlock and, and a little bit into the foot, you know, it, then watch the horse move again. And um, you know, kind of just like you, you know, if you sit on your leg funny and it hurts, your first few steps are going to be really lame. Um, horses are kind of the same. So it really just exacerbates so that something might become more obvious to us if that is the joint or the area that's actually hurting the horse. You know, if they don't respond to one area, then we'll kind of move up the leg, um, you know, mm-hmm. so kind of do the, the knee next, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and again, we, we do that either whether we're trying to figure out a lameness or certainly, you know, it may be something you've seen as part of a pre-purchase exam as well. Right. Um, right. But it really is just putting extra pressure on different joints to see if we can make a lameness look worse so that we can say, yes, you know, this is coming yeah. from your horse's left front fetlock. Let's focus the rest of our exam there. So mm-hmm. you've done those things. You've watched the horse go on varying ground straight and in different directions. You've done some flex pet tests and you're suspicious. Now, at this point, is it 
is the is the exam still linear? Do you go directly to the next step if you're not exactly sure? Or at this point, does the exam tend to diverge depending on the results of what we've done so far? Yeah, it's going to depend on what we've done so far. And to be 100% honest, you know, you as a horse owner and kind of what you want to do, the particular horse itself, the veterinarian itself, um, you know, there's a lot of different ways to potentially proceed from there that aren't, aren't better or worse, right or wrong. Um, you know, a lot of times, again, if, if after watching the horse go and watching the horse flex, you know, we might say we, again, have now localized it to this particular area. You know, let's do a nerve block to confirm that it is definitively mm-hmm. that area. So, again, whether that's, you know, the nerve supply in that area or directly into the joint itself, uh, you know, we might block it to say, yes, when we make that area numb, now the horse looks normal. Great. We are on the right track. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, now let's go ahead and do x-rays, do ultrasound, do whatever might go from there. Oh, I'm, I'm glad you brought up the toys. As you yeah, I was going to ask. Yeah. We have so many, yeah. so many toys at our disposal nowadays. Uh-huh. Which yep. of these many amazing inventions is the one that was the biggest ch- game changer for you as a veterinarian? Ooh, good question. That's a great question. Um, I probably have to say MRI. Yeah. Uh, I think in terms of really letting us see some things, especially again, when we talk about things like deep within the hoof capsule itself, you know, that's an area that was kind of a, a black box just to some extent. Uh, you know, well, you can only see it when it was already uh, deceased. So yeah, yeah. yeah <laughs> exactly. Or again, you know, if there was a, a big bony change, you might be able to see that on x-ray, but it's an area that you couldn't really get a great ultrasound image of a lot of those structures. So I think MRI is one of those things that definitely opened up our eyes in some cases, maybe too much. You know, I think mm. when I think back to when we very first started using MRI, you know, we would just find all of these things and figuring out what was actually relevant. Well, yeah, it was exactly. Yes. <laughs> just because we uh, could see it doesn't mean it changes exactly. what we already know. Yeah, yeah. exactly. It doesn't yeah. mean that that's that horse's problem or exactly that we're going to do anything different about it. But I think in terms of really seeing a lot of things, I would say that, you know, MRI has helped us a ton. Obviously, we do still have a... I don't, I don't want to undersell the importance of just a good physical exam and using your eyes and your hands uh, to, to really watch mm-hmm. horses go. Cause I think that is a, a fine art that, you know, those mm-hmm. of us that have been around horses a long time very much appreciate. Um, yes. X-ray obviously is, is reasonably simple for us to, to get most areas of the horse's body. Um, and again, can give us some great information about bone related issues. Ultrasound, I'd say, is one of those things that varies with the comfort of the person holding the ultrasound probe. Mm, <laughs> uh, yeah. yeah, there are some veterinarians that's an art form in and of itself, isn't it? It is, it is. And so, again, there's veterinarians that are awesome at it. You know, use it a ton. There are others that maybe aren't as comfortable with it, or again, are are good at you know, kind of some basic things. But you know, there are such subtle findings that you can find that you know, there are veterinarians that spent decades continuing to to train mm-hmm. on ultrasound use. Um, but I have a toy question. Yeah, another yeah. toy question, and I I wish I was more versed at it, but maybe you will know. And I don't know if uh, Bowen or Ingelheim uh, has one. But w- I went to a clinic last fall where they have a new machine that is de- detects lameness, and that just seemed like a foreign subject to me because I I don't know what they're detecting. But um, I, is that something you're familiar with, or you can? Yes, yeah. So there's a few different. Um, 
systems that essentially help to localize lameness. So one of the original ones is actually called even the lameness localizer, um, but there's a variety of different ones out there now. And again, it's similar to, again, if you you, um, or anyone you know has ever, you know, had an injury or been to a running clinic, you know, there's ones where essentially you're putting like sensors on the horse's body Mm -hmm. uh, Mm -hmm. and then have a scanner that can pick up or detect those sensors as the horse moves and look for, you know, differences in symmetry of kind of right versus left or front versus back in terms of how they're moving. So some involve actually putting sensors on the horse. You know, way back in the day, we had kind of more like force plates, which were long treadmills oh, that yeah. a horse could run on. And again, look for differences. Those obviously are not not the most portable pieces of equipment. <laughs> but they've come so far now to, to where some of the newer um, motion detection things, you don't even need sensors. You really just need an iPhone and the software. Uh, and you can just video horses again from certain angles doing that, wow. you know, walk wow. and trot forward and away from you. Uh, and they, again, have people way smarter than me uh, in terms of computer programmers and whatnot, making algorithms that, again, can detect differences. So asymmetries between right and left. That's it. Um, okay. it's, it's amazing. Not to totally disrail the conversation, but, yeah, the the technologies even just the fitness trackers and all of the different things, you know, that obviously are used so much in, in human training, you know, that are being extrapolated to horses are pretty impressive. You know, the different things that can be woven into girths and saddle pads to do heart rate detections uh, and whatnot are pretty impressive. Oh, uh, we've got to have another episode about that. Dr. Roos too. I would love to hear more about the toys and I'm sure Jen will too, but, um, but thank you. We've taken a lot of your time today and I really appreciate it. I would just say, don't be frustrated. You know, sometimes Mm -hmm. you have to be patient in getting to the bottom of it. We recognize that it's frustrating. Monty likes to say that the concepts inherent in the language equus are based upon always giving the horse the power of choice. This is why he created his online university. So rehabbing and rehoming racehorses. You want to save them all. We get it. You will love this series with Monty and Jamie Jennings, host of Horses in the Morning and a certified Monty Roberts instructor out of Oklahoma. They work together on retraining ex-racehorses or off-the-track thoroughbreds for new purposeful careers. See this series at MontyRobertsUniversity.com. Carl Bledsoe trains horses and teaches horse owners of all breeds of horses, but gated horses are his passion. Carl's a lifelong Tennessee walking horse enthusiast. Carl often asks himself, what's in this for the horse? This has taught him how to become a better trainer and teacher for the horses, but it's also taught him to be a better husband, father, and friend. For this, he is eternally grateful to what he feels is one of God's greatest creations, the horse. Well, welcome back, Carl Bledsoe. I am so happy to have you back on with talk about your favorite breed, the Tennessee Walking Horse. And I want to remind listeners that it was episode 39. You can go back and listen to that 10 years-ish ago um, when Carl, maybe maybe nine years now. And this is episode 235 as we speak. So a lot of water has gone under that uh, wooden bridge. Yeah? Absolutely have. What have you been up to? Yeah, what have you been up to? Well, to to be quite frank with you, I've learned how to train a horse in that amount of time. Uh, yeah. Now, now the journey's not over because you know as well as I do that 
it's a never ending journey. But That's I right. had grown up in a world uh, where where we we didn't put as much emphasis on the the natural balance of the horse, the psychology of the horse, how important the rider handler is in the communication. So I have spent the last almost 10 years completely engrossed in education. Mm. And, and that's what I do now. We, we travel all over the place and we do educational clinics uh, promoting what is beneficial for the horse. Tammy and I have uh, pinned this little, this little catchphrase, what's in it for the horse. Right. So when we do, when we do clinics, we try to make people understand what the natural movement of the horse is and how we can help that horse strengthen the natural movement. And then over time with correct riding and, and limitations on, on how, how we do things that you can put refinement in it and have just the greatest partner in the world. That's nice. And they are, they're very sweet horses. I, uh, you know, I've advocated for their little personalities for years um, I mean, partially, it's kind of good news, bad news. I think that that is the good news. The bad news is that they're so compliant because I think we we, did, we didn't we didn't do them any justice for all those years. And we've bred exactly. a, a whole breed of very compliant horses. But I I think they're happier horses now. What do you think? I do too, and I think uh, on on the scale that I do things because I don't do anything towards any kind of competition. Everything that I do is geared toward the recreational rider or the trail rider or somebody that uses these animals like on an everyday working farm. Mm-hmm. So, so it's, it's completely changed the view from, from, my perspective, but what I've run into is the lack of education on, mm-hmm. on how to help develop these horses correctly where, where they can do the job efficiently and, and, you know, be sound mentally and physically and balanced. Mentally and Tell mentally. us, so what do you do? How do you do that? Yeah. Well, you yeah. know, uh, you asked me in episode 39, I made the comment that I, that I like to follow dressage, classical type training. And you, your, your question to me was, who do I follow? And I said, most everybody. But since mm-hmm. then, uh, you know, I have done a lot of research uh, on the art of horsemanship. Nuno Oliveria has, there's several people that have taken notes and refurbish the notes from their time with him. And that's helped me tie the locomotion, the balance and the psychology of the horse together. Nuno was just a brilliant horseman, but, but he's not with us anymore. So I had to find some people that were with us and you guys have a, a, a great person in your part of the country uh, that does the cowboy dressage. Aton. Aton. And, mm-hmm. and I have, I have, followed a lot of what Aton's philosophy is in the lightness and the natural carriage of the horse. Mm-hmm. There's, there's no absolutes with me. Uh, if, if your horse is built like a tank, then we're going to try to make him be able to be as, as balanced a tank as we can. And if you've got this real fine built horse that, that is more confirmationally correct, you could probably get a little more out of that horse. Mm-hmm. But what I try to do is meet each horse where they're at and help them strengthen their weak points and then put refinement on, on their good points. Okay. So following, following Aton has been just a, a, a real eye-opener for me. But then, then, you know, Mark Russell was around for a long time. He did the likeness and all of that. And I've read a lot of Mark Russell 
another brilliant horseman that's just just gone way too soon. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. um, Sally Swift is mm-hmm. centered riding. I've right. done a lot of studying on that and worked with some centered riding instructors. Yeah. All while I was doing all of this study and I was going to clinics and participating with, with, with other people, I've been to, you know, some Buck Brenneman clinics and I've been to some Jonathan field clinics and, and all of this stuff plays a hand okay. in, in what's correct. I tried to, to align myself in situations to where people had the same philosophy of the horse. They don't want to use the horse as a machine. They want to let the horse be himself, but help okay. him be better at it to where we didn't get in his way. And the part that we played in, in play is not detrimental to his longevity. Mm-hmm. Well, you're you're such a you're so focused on the Tennessee walking horse. Tell me how a gated horse fits in with some of those disciplines and some of those big locomotion horses. That well, you, it, it, it takes a little longer to develop a Tennessee walking horse. And the reason I say that is because they never depart from the, the, what the walk, the basic walk, which is a one, two, three, four beat. Each foot travels the same distance in its own time. And it's a three foot, two foot carrying pattern. All of the rest of the, the breeds, not the, not the gated breeds, but the other, like the quarter horses, the thoroughbreds, the warm bloods, they depart from that when you add speed and go to a trot, mm-hmm. which is diagonal pairs. Right. That horse is a little bit, there's more information available. There's been more study and done on that to strengthen those horses and help them along with their job. And mm-hmm. the gated horses, the Tennessee walking horses especially, they never depart from that one, two, three, four footfall. So it takes a little bit longer to develop the top line. They don't have any suspension like a trotting horse would. Yeah. There's absolutely no moment of suspension. So they're a little trickier to get balanced and they're a little trickier to strengthen. Mm-hmm. And, and that, that's been the main curve for the people that have come to my clinics is understanding how to let that horse, when they're moving in their natural state, mm-hmm. they are supposed to shake their head. But you can yeah. get in the way of their head shake with with a little bit too short of reins mm-hmm. and not even really be putting a lot of pressure on the rein. But what it does is it changes with just a short rein, even if you're not putting pressure on it, it changes the range of motion of the head, right. which in effect changes the way that they carry themselves in the hindquarters. Right. So, so there's a great big movement out there with people trying to learn how to train this horse to balance himself. And there's not that many resources available past a good walk. Uh, you ask anybody that's, that's tested dressage on, on trotting horses, and you ask them, where do you get your worst marks? Oh, it's always the walk. I always bomb the walk. Well, guess what? The Tennessee walking horse people are trying to do that at speed. Yeah. <laughs> So, so it uh-huh. takes a little more time and a little bit sure. more attention to strengthen that. Yeah, absolutely. How do you, you know, the, um, I was going to ask you how you build up that locomotion on the end, but maybe a better question is when I see a discipline like we've had here recently, a competition in working equitation, 
um, uh-huh. which is lovely. It's often done with, um, you know, some of the Portuguese, Spanish breeds, you know, some of the, yeah, and they're beautiful in all their garrosha love, loveliness, you know. Um, yep. But it is very much on that hind end and push forward. And so how do you, I mean, I can't, I can't imagine a Tennessee walking horse emulating that, but I'd love to know how. Well, it's a process to go through and you ride on a couple of different lengths of rain, okay. uh, you know, just like you would when you're working towards regular dressage. Mm-hmm. The thing is, is you never take up contact to this horse and push him to the bit until he completely balances himself and is able to maintain a, a balanced one, two, three, four at speed. Okay. Once he can do that at, 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 a, at a four to a seven mile an hour speed, then you can take up just a little bit of contact and ask for a little bit more impulsion and get that horse to start using his hindquarters. Mm-hmm. But, but the people that I run into and in my clinics, the people are having a hard time because the, the education that's out there now is you sit completely different. They, they say the Tennessee walking horse is different and you, you sit kind of back on your, on your tailbone a little more with your feet forward and put pressure on the bit to get him to ride smooth. Mm-hmm. Well, there's a difference in correct and smooth. You can get that locomotion to be smooth and never strengthen it because the stride will be out behind the horse instead of Mm. under the horse. I see. Yeah. So to do what you're trying to do, we've got to make sure that that horse is engaged on his top line and that his thoracic sling is, is being prepared the way it needs to be to where he can get that engagement under him instead of out behind him. (laughs) Yeah. And they're lovely when they do it. I've seen it accomplished. I just don't know how you train for it, but it sounds like, it, yeah. it is a process to go through. I've, you know, I've got one horse here now that is, that is finished that I could probably start participating uh, in some work in equitation. And I mean, I, you can participate at any level, but this horse is finished enough that, that we could move into the speed class. Now he's not as fast as some of the, the Spanish bred horses, but, but he's got a good balanced canter. He's got a decent, you can change leads on him. Uh, he's got a really good stop. Uh, but, but the thing that people recognize about him is he's not your run-of-the-mill Tennessee walking horse. He's got a little mm-hmm. bit different stride to his hindquarters than what maybe you guys have seen on videos or whatever. And, and I worked him that way on purpose. I wanted him to be a working horse, mm-hmm. so I never made the horse lug from the front end like you see a lot of the gated horses do yeah this horse has never been in any type of shoe other than a keg shoe and i worked towards balance i didn't work towards a great big overstride hey can i I jump in here a second i'm something something that you said just a few minutes ago really really resonated with me okay that you didn't work for the 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 smooth gate and the correct gate. Yes, ma'am. They're they're two different things, and I think that's something that the gated horse community is growing and it's expanding because it's a great community for someone who is no longer who's a lifelong horse person who yes. can't ride a three gated horse anymore because there's too much going on there. We're lame. Yes. The horse is yes. fine. So I think it's great that you are pointing out 
to that community, both on the inside and those of like me on the outside of the gated community, that because we can't when whenever we talk about gated horses, we focus a hundred percent on the smoothness of the gate. Yes, versus the here, correctness of the gate, because if they're not correct, all the smoothness in the world isn't going to help anybody in the long term. Well, it's not going to the horse is not going to last. And what right. happens um, yeah. in the world that I come from, the people that have moved to the gated horses from the trotting breed, they've never ridden a gated horse. They've always posted a trot. So <laughs> even a gated horse, Tennessee walking horse that it's not really, really smooth like they're supposed to be feels really smooth to somebody that's moved in from a trotting horse. Mm. So he can be incorrect in gait and still feel really smooth. And that's a sales point because there are people, uh, my clientele, the people, the age group that, that rides with me most is 65 years old and up. Mm-hmm. So they, they might've ridden that three gated horse herding life, but they just don't want to post the trot anymore. Mm-hmm. But what happens is they're buying this this horse for his smoothness, and they're not really getting somebody that's got a keen eye, right? And understanding the horse it. is balanced or not. Mm-hmm. He can be smooth to ride, but really be on the forehand, and mm-hmm. really be. You have to keep a lot of tension on the rein to maintain that smoothness. And over time, that horse becomes sore because it's his hindquarters yeah. trail out behind him and, yeah. and the the length of stride has been interrupted because of the pressure on the bit and the horse becomes sore and then all of a sudden he don't want the rider on his back anymore. Mm-hmm. And that's why I am relevant right now uh, is because I have spent the time to learn how to develop this horse to where he is physically fit but mentally fit too, because the psychology in the horse's physical shape, they go hand in hand. If he doesn't feel good, he's not going to act good. Mm-hmm. So when Here's, people come it, to my it, clinics, they, mm-hmm. they, they come for me to help them bridge this gap. Right. And and where I wanted to go to in, is into the future um, of the Tennessee walking horse, because you're training for today and the horse that we have now. But where is the breeding going to take, in your opinion, Carl? You know, if uh, I don't I think they're beautiful the way they are and they were bred to do just exactly what you're talking about is a working horse that covers a lot of ground on those plantations back a hundred years ago. And, and, and that's a wonderful thing, but knowing that we have riders now and elderly riders who like a a nice smooth gait, where would you take the breed in in the, in the confirmation and the pedigrees, I guess? Well, we're going to have to breed a, a, a better balanced horse. Mm -hmm. For the longest time, and these horses are really closely related, that they all go back to Allen F1. So, yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, that there's there's quite a bit of closeness in there, and there's some character flaws in the breed. Um, in my opinion, it works good for the show ring, but it doesn't work good for the horse that you use every day, like right. on a 20 mile trail ride or to do the sport type stuff like the work in equitation. The horses are a little longer barreled than they need to be, mm-hmm. and, and a good number of them are sickle hopped. Mm-hmm. And, and we've got to pay some attention to that to breed those character flaws out of the horse because 
the horse that sickle hopped is an extremely difficult horse to strengthen. Yeah. The horse with the long back that's got the long barrel, they take a little longer to strengthen. And sometimes they don't get strong enough. Uh, if you wanted to ride endurance, you would never look at one of these long back Tennessee walking horses. Mm-hmm. You, the horse is just not going to last. He's not going to pass the vet check. Yeah. But but that type of horse works for the show ring, and there's got to be some middle ground there. And right. there are breeders out there that recognize this. Good. Okay. That are, that are trying to selectively breed that horse that's a little that's a that's a little the form to function works a little bit better. Great. So, so, and I'm hoping as time goes on that the, that the breed registry will recognize that and get a little more involved with it and, and kind of offer some suggestions to, cause you know, there's some smaller breeders out there, uh, that, that, that would really like to raise that naturally gated horse that could, that could grow up to maybe be an endurance horse or a working equitation type yeah. horse instead of the horse that goes to the show ring. Exactly. So, so I see that happening over time because that's the way that's the way that the, the Tennessee walking horse I see going over the next 10 years. Yeah, good. Okay, well, you're such an insider on this with a long-range vision that I figured you'd have a, a, a breeding um, vision, uh, you know, a prayer, a hope <laughs> well, for these horses. And, um, yeah, and, and it's can gonna you... Take, it's going to take people working together. So yes. I, I am... I am pro Tennessee walking horse. I moved out of the show ring and, 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 you know, we all, we all wanted to see the legislation passed. It was, but I think we're at a different day and time now. Yes. And and everybody's moving towards, you know, you know, what can these horses really do? And it's amazing past the show ring, just exactly what they can do. And the biggest reason Debbie, that, that they're able to do that, just like you and I talked about earlier it's the temperament. Mm-hmm. It's the temperament, exactly. completely the temperament. Yes. And and that didn't happen by accident. They, right. you know, they've been bred for years for that temperament. Mm-hmm. We've just got to find some middle ground with the breeders to breed. Uh, you know, don't don't put two negatives together. If you've got a if you've got a horse that produces a a, a longer back sickle hawk type horse, find a different type horse to breed it to, mm-hmm. and and maybe. Maybe they should cut down the numbers that they breed, mm-hmm. uh, if you would, till they till they kind of get a finger on that. Mm-hmm. And, I'm and not do the you, one that makes those, but you can okay. you can see how you can see how that would that would benefit over time. Of course, yeah, and I, you know, I if we can put together some advocates in that direction too, I don't know what you know. Do you just let us know if there's anything that we can help with your, you know, you're inside that industry more than we can be. So um, I'd, I'd love to talk about that too. Cause I do, I do think just like I see the Mustangs, you know, trying to keep those pure lines and um, so that we don't just, yeah, we don't just call them, you know, uh, whatever ends up on the Nevada desert is a Mustang. Yep. But um, I look at these beautiful horses, the Lusitanos and the, the uh, oh my gosh you know there's so many breeds from portugal and spain that i just think um are unbelievable and i i think there's um there's been a really intelligent way that they've uh, used those bloodlines and i think you could do the same thing for most any breed if you're if you know the andalusians look at those most, but even most if you every breed yeah go ahead 
pardon me for interrupting. Yeah. Most every breed that, that wants to keep credibility, mm-hmm. you have to pass an inspection and you're either certified to breed or you're registered and not certified to breed. Exactly. Exactly. And and it should be those things that don't take us off in a weird direction for horses, yeah. but take us to a practical but also healthy direction too. And I love what you're you're doing for the breed and I appreciate it. Whisper the language of the herd. Listen, you don't have to say a word. It's time for Jamie Jennings to fetch an email from Monty Roberts inbox and share a morsel of Monty's wisdom in a little segment we like to call Ask Monty. Leave this world a better place in the magic in the language of Dear Monty, what's the most important thing I should know about dealing with a two-month-old foal? Monty's answer. The most important knowledge that I can impart to you is to be safe and work with your foal without violence or force. At two months of age, probably the most important work is leading the foal alongside his mother. I further suggest that it is important to groom and pick up the feet, encouraging your foal to stand and to be comfortable with you during these procedures. While foal imprinting is usually executed in the first hour of life, imprinting first impressions can be done right through the growing up years. I would suggest studying the section on full imprinting in my textbook From My Hands to Yours and also recommend books by Dr. Robert Miller regarding the care and training of foals. One of the pitfalls I would suggest you take great care to avoid is feeding from the hand. It is also extremely important to understand the principles behind uh, behind allowing a horse to remain a horse. Many people are guilty of overhumanizing the young horse. For more of these insights into good horsemanship, go to MontyRoberts.com and click on the words Ask Monty at the bottom of the page. I'm Monty Roberts, and I'm dedicated to training horses without pain. You can learn to do it, too, on my Equus Online University. Western, English, the beginner, or the advanced rider. It doesn't matter. You can connect with other students online, too, on our forum... And there's a new lesson every week. It's a lifetime of learning for you on my Equus Online University at MontyRoberts.com. Where in the world is Monty Roberts? Monty is looking forward to meeting some new friends, two-legged and four-legged. On the 31st of July through August 4 is the Gentling Wild Horse Course. That's five days. The 5th of August is our Mountain Trail Play Day. The 7th through the 19th of August is our introductory course of horsemanship. And then we'll take the modules on top of that. So August 7 through 9 is the introductory introductory course module one that's the first steps then 10 through 12 is the module two join up 14 through 16 is the long lining module three and then 17 to 19 is the introductory course module four which is preparation for those intro exams and you can find all of that and more at montyroberts.com you can even find the podcast there that's right right on the home page just yep. scroll down a little bit and the Horsemanship Radio podcast is right there on MontyRoberts.com if you'd like to listen on your computer. Monty's calendar can also be found via a phone call. That's right, 805-688-6288. A very pleasant human being will answer the phone and answer all of your questions. 
For notes about today's show, you can go to horsemanshipradio.com where you can find links, photos, and information. Or, as I said, you can go to moneyroberts.com and find it, too. If you haven't subscribed to the show already, go to your favorite podcast player. It can be Spotify or Apple or whatever, Google Play. Mm-hmm. And type in their horsemanship radio, and then each episode will come automatically to your phone, and you don't have to worry about trying to find it. So, just helpful hint there. Good tip. We love your feedback. You can do that on social media, Monty Roberts. It's the one with the little blue check mark, and on Twitter as well as Instagram, it's Monty underscore Roberts. Yep, and many thanks to our sponsors too. That is Jay Michelson at HandsOnGloves.com. And Monty Roberts at MontyRobertsUniversity.com. And be sure to visit all the other great shows, too, on the Horse Radio Network at www.horseradionetwork.com. Until next time, have many happy horse hours.